This is a bonus podcast connected to the previous episode, The Okeechobee 8. If you haven't listened to that yet, be sure to go back and do that before this episode. Otherwise, you'll be missing a lot of context and information. When I was putting together the Okeechobee 8 episode, I hadn't known about the death of Okeechobee County Sheriff John Collier. As I mentioned in the last episode, my exposure to the Okeechobee 8 story was mainly through secondhand urban legends. So when I started getting into the details of that death, it was hard not to let that aspect take over the whole episode. The community reaction and obvious conspiracy theories that sprung up would be enough for its own episode altogether. But I didn't want to overwhelm listeners with information. There were already so many names to keep track of and I didn't want to overshadow the original drug smuggling aspect of the story. I thought about making a bonus episode about the death of the sheriff, but after spending weeks researching the case and thinking about it nonstop, I felt like I was just ready to move on. But then, a week after the episode came out, I got an email with the subject line, Death of John Collier. The email began, Mr. Marion, I am reaching out to you regarding your recent podcast referencing the death of Okeechobee County Sheriff John Collier. I have factual information pertaining to the investigation of Sheriff Collier. Now, when you've just made a podcast about an elected official's death possibly being covered up, it's not the most comforting feeling to get an email from a stranger asking to meet you. Especially when there were vague allusions to a powerful group of drug smugglers who don't want that death looked into. So I was a little bit hesitant on how to respond. But I decided I made it this far. I might as well just see how this plays out. So I reached out and set up a time and date to conduct an interview. Also, just in case, I may have forwarded the email to a few of my friends and said, if you don't hear from me, this is why. And with that, I got into my car and headed out to meet the person behind this email. Thankfully, the person behind the email wasn't an assassin sent by Colombian drug lords. Instead, it was a former deputy who was at the Okeechobee County Sheriff's Office in 1986 when John Collier died. My name's Gary Hargraves, um, a lifelong resident uh, here in Okeechobee County. Um, first got affiliated with Okeechobee County Sheriff's Department in 1981 um, by way of the Sheriff's Auxiliary. Stayed with the Auxiliary for a couple of years and then moved on to full-time employment with the Okeechobee County Sheriff's Department. And I was there with them uh, until um, 
about six months after the death of John Collier, which occurred in 1986. And I uh, left for a period of time, came back uh, as uh, divisional commander for Uniform Patrol Division uh, for Sheriff Ed Miller, and then uh, left again, retired in uh, 2001. Can you tell me a little bit about John Collier, who he was as a person? And uh, well, the uh, <laughs> he, I heard him wax psychologically one time. He, uh, we were talking about. Uh, something you alluded to whenever he went into the convenience store and mm. talked this fellow down. Mm -hmm. And we got talking about a rational mind cannot comprehend the acts of somebody who is irrational. And I asked him, I said, well, where did that leave you that day, Sheriff? <laughs> <laughs> and he, he didn't have to say anything. He just gave me the look, you know. <laughs> but uh, we were, we were good enough friends that, and we respected each other. We didn't play games. I mean, what you saw with John Collier was what you got. He meant what he said and said what he meant. He didn't play mixed words. Um, you have never had yourself chewed out until you got chewed out by John Collier. <laughs> but the minute you left his office, he was with you. He had his arm around you. Unless you'd have been privy to that conversation, you never realized there'd have been an issue in his office. That's just the way he treated his people. Um, that's the John Collier that uh, I knew and respected and, you know, choose to remember. On the night Sheriff Collier died, Gary was working overnight. As he arrived home in the early morning hours following his shift, he got a phone call. Uh, I was working midnight shift that night. Uniform Patrol Division, I was shift supervisor. And... Uh, I got off, uh, and it was like 7.35 or so when I got home. Hadn't been home but just a few minutes, and the phone rang. And it was Captain Butch Parkerson from the sheriff's office. And um, he said, Gary, this is Butch. I said, what's going on? What's up? And he paused, and he said, the sheriff's dead. You could tell he's... he's voice was kind of shaky. I said, what in the world, Butch? And he said, they said he shot himself. I said, well, what do you need me to do? And he said, well, he said, it's like a madhouse down here. I said, I'll get dressed and be back. And I slipped another uniform on and went down there. My mentality was uh, just bewilderment because I had spoken to the sheriff not too long before that happened. And uh, uh, no way, based on anything that was said in that conversation, would I even remotely believe he was contemplating suicide. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was just nothing there. I, so I was just bewildered, to say the very least, whatever. That was my mindset at the time. One of the early conspiracy theories was that Collier killed himself because he was involved with the drug trafficking and knew an indictment was coming for him. This was probably the easiest theory to bat down. After Collier's death, Florida Department of Law Enforcement agent Pete Lanier revealed in a deposition that the sheriff had actually been working local drug contacts for information and that Collier had passed along intel to the feds that smugglers were working with a heavyweight Colombian drug dealer named Carlos Mejia. Mejia was arrested one month before Carlier's death in 1986. But five months after he was arrested, Mejia jumped a $5.5 million bond and disappeared. 
There were rumors he died in 1989 after being shot by another man during an argument in Colombia. But law enforcement was skeptical of that claim, noting that Mejia would have a very definite interest in making American authorities, as well as Colombian authorities, believe he's dead. None of the smugglers arrested ever implicated the sheriff in the operation either. And Sheriff Collier didn't have any excess money one would expect to have if he was being paid off by drug smugglers. No hidden bank accounts. The house he lived in was his wife's, and the car he drove belonged to the county. Despite all this evidence to the contrary, to this day I still hear the theory that the sheriff was involved. In fact, one of the first messages I received after the Okeechobee 8 episode was released was a man asking why I left out the part about the sheriff working with the smugglers and how he was about to be indicted and that was why he killed himself. So why does this rumor still persist? I think I may have found out what could have helped that story have legs. That's because in a county next to Okeechobee, a story very similar to the Okeechobee 8 played out. Except this time, not only was the sheriff involved, he was a key player. Hendry County is about a 50 minute drive from Okeechobee, located on the southwest shores of Lake Okeechobee. There, throughout the 1980s, Hendry County Sheriff Earl Dice Jr. was paid $250,000 by smugglers for allowing nearly nine tons of cocaine through his county. The sheriff provided protection and surveillance for Colombian drug importers, and in some cases, escorted cocaine-carrying vehicles to his county line. In 1993, Sheriff Dice Jr. was finally arrested for his part in the conspiracy and sentenced to 17 years in prison. Dice's father, Earl Dice Sr., was actually sheriff before him, in 1980, Dice Sr. heard gunfire behind his house late at night and went outside to investigate. There, in the alley behind his home, he found two teenagers with a gun. As he confronted the two teenagers, one of the teenagers stabbed him in the heart. Dice Jr. was appointed as sheriff shortly after his father's death. Even as Dice Jr. worked hand-in-hand -hand with the drug smugglers, he was elected president of the Florida Sheriff's Association and was a member of the Governor's Drug Policy Task Force. Wild story. Maybe as the years passed, people remembered hearing this story and have mistakenly transposed some of the details to the case in Okeechobee. I don't know. But Sheriff Collier wasn't involved with the smugglers. He helped bring them down. But could someone involved with his smuggling operation have had the sheriff killed in retribution? He died only a month after the initial indictments against the Okeechobee 8 were announced. And only one month after he secured intel that led to the arrest of the big shot Colombian drug dealer, Carlos Mejia. Was the sheriff murdered in retaliation for tanking the drug machine in Okeechobee? When Ed Miller was elected sheriff in Okeechobee, he reopened the investigation into Sheriff Collier's death. Gary Hargraves was a part of that reinvestigation. But what we tried to do is we tried to 
follow up on just about everything that we had heard. The master file did not include a lot of things such as uh, neighborhood canvassing. Uh, I did that, the neighborhood canvas, um, not because of what one already been done. We questioned the thoroughness of, of it, so we're just going to go back and re-interview. I determined that uh, a block and a half away from Sheriff Collier's residence, there was a business by the name of Skip's Barbecue. And at 4.30 that morning, there was a crew of men that got there early, set up lights, and they were going to re-roof that building. And they were there early to beat the, the heat. And not one of those people were ever interviewed. Come to find out that there was uh, a car stopped in front of the sheriff's residence. They saw the lights come to a stop and they heard it excel again. Said it may have stopped for five, ten seconds. They didn't see anything. All they are doing is observing this from a, a block and a half away. Uh, had we had that information at the time, we might have been able to follow up. Our job basically was to follow up anything we could follow up on. Uh, Ed Miller said, uh, you've got carte blanche, you know, regardless of how ridiculous it may sound, follow up, you know, and we were always trying to, if somebody said anything, our next job was try to find independent cooperation of that statement or these set of facts. I had one woman say that uh, uh, Colombians came in, landed uh, uh, an aircraft, got out, borrowed a vehicle, uh, came to Okeechobee, killed the sheriff, went back, got in the plane, and flew off. We, uh, we got into nothing but dead ends there. A lot of this stuff was uh, supposition and innuendo. You, you know, we weren't able to tie a lot of it together, um, and and because we weren't, uh, the investigation basically uh, went nowhere from our investigative standpoint. Gary relayed a story of once while out with Sheriff Collier's son, John Austin Collier, a member of the community came up to them and said, matter-of-factly, they got to him. They killed your dad. Well, Richard, one thing, too, I'll never forget the day uh, that this happened. I, it's really fresh in my mind. John Alton and his wife, Kim, had just come up to me, and we were conversing. And this lady walks up, and she's, John Alton's standing in front of me, Kim standing to my left. This lady walks up to my right, and she kind of interjects. She says, they got to him, they killed him. And John Alton looked at her and he says, what did you say? Well, they got to him, they killed him. There was a lot of supposition, but her putting that statement out there, mm -hmm. and I'm sure others may have heard it in the community, mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of supposition about, well, maybe it was a hit. Mm -hmm. You know, not because he was involved, but maybe he was a threat to these people mm -hmm. and they were trying to remove the threat.
Ultimately, there wasn't enough information in these leads to form a viable path for the investigation. Flaws in the initial investigation, along with the passage of time, proved hard to overcome. My thoughts about the investigation uh, to that point, uh, to be honest with you, was not very good. Um, Back whenever Sheriff Miller was in the state attorney's office, he asked me to review the report. And I did and found 20-some-odd areas in the report that I felt was either um, incomplete or possibly not done at all. First and foremost was the fact that the scene was not secured. There were people coming and going in the residence. Later that day, I was approached while I was here there on the scene by a man, and he said, Gary, he says, there were people allowed to go into the bedroom and, and, and actually witness the scene. And he says, and I'm not just talking about one or two, he said, there was a bunch of people. Well, every time you walk into a scene, you carry trace evidence into that scene. And every time you leave, you remove trace evidence from the scene. Um, we have no idea who was in there because of, there's supposed to be a crime scene chronology there of exactly who's coming and going and the reason for doing it. Um, we, we did not have that. We were not able to interview any of those people to, to, to determine what they saw, position of the body, position of the gun, you know, anything like that, that a normal layperson would witness. Did you accidentally touch anything? We had no idea who to talk to. It's those initial flaws in the investigation that has let this cloud of uncertainty hang around the death. One question I had was, why was the bedding destroyed that John Collier died on? And who gave the instruction? I was standing there talking to O.L., O.L. was standing next to me, and then on O.L.'s right side was Pete Lanier, and then on Pete's right side was Buck Buchanan, and George Miller, who was our crime scene tech, was standing next to me on my left side. And O.L. asked me, Gary, um, is our truck in use today? And when he said that, he's talking about a uh, Ford pickup that we use for various tasks around the jail. And I told him, I said, not to my knowledge, it, it was there earlier in the day when I was there. So... There was a deputy had walked up, and he looked at him. He said, I want you to go get the truck. He said, I want you to load uh, all the bloody sheets, the bed mat, the mattress, and box springs, all that stuff, clean it up in there, and take it out and burn it. He says, I do not want Mary to come home and have to deal with that. That's pretty much verbatim what O.L. told him to do. At least the framing of it was to be respectful, basically. That's the verbiage that O.L. alluded to, yes. Yeah. Didn't no one question like should we keep this? I guess because they assumed it was suicide. They... Well, the key word you just said was assumed. Yeah, you know, and you're right. Mm-hmm. Um, a major sticking point with the investigation is there was no uh, forensic work done from a blood splatter mm-hmm. standpoint, and those technicians are nothing short of miraculous. They can they can recreate a scene from blood splatter that's just blow your mind. They can tell you which side it was delivered from, you know, the distance. They can tell you where the person was standing based on the blood splatter. And so um, for that to be removed prior to that analysis being done, I think was a tremendous injustice. Now, and it could have been an injustice because it wasn't a, a suicide, and it could very well have gone to prove that it was. So that's a double-edged sword. It could have cut either way. So I, I, it always bothered me as to why that was done. John's wife, Mary, was the first to find his body in the early morning hours on November 10th in 1986. 
In an article in the Palm Beach Post written by Paula Marty and Pat Moore, Mary described that morning. Mary was coming back from staying over at her sister's house the night before and arrived home at 7 a.m. Quote, I thought it was strange he wasn't up, said Mary. When I went into the bedroom, the drapes were drawn closed. I shook his foot to get him up and went back to the kitchen. I still didn't hear him for 10 to 15 minutes. I went back and this time I pulled the drapes. God, I would have liked to have a heart attack right there. I could see the gun in his hand. I didn't check to see if he was breathing. I just flew to the phone and called O.L. Rollerson as fast as I could. After I called O.L., I never went back into that room. Rollerson, one of Collier's deputies, was the first member of law enforcement on the scene. In the Palm Beach Post the day after the death, Rollerson would tell a reporter that the gun was found in Collier's hand. However, photos taken that day by law enforcement show the gun not in his hand, but lying next to him, partially on his neck and shoulder. During the later investigation of the death done 10 years after, forensic pathologist Ronald Wright wrote that the position of the gun was very important to him, that in his experience, scenes staged to look like suicides, people try to make them look too good. They put the gun in the hand. While the gun line on Collier's shoulder is about where he would expect it to be if this was, in fact, a suicide. Rolleston would go on to be appointed sheriff after Collier's death, but a few of his decisions in the aftermath would confuse some in the community. One being the refusal to release the sheriff's office report on Collier's death to his son, John Austin. Well, the reaction from the sheriff's office was disbelief. The reaction from the community was, well, why in the world not? So I, I just never understood why uh, he did not want him to have a copy other than maybe something I wasn't aware of. And I'll leave it at that. I, don't, I truly don't know why. It bothered me personally because, you know, if we had done a, a miraculous job and you know, dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's, left no stone unturned. I'd have been proud for him to have a copy of that, mm -hmm. you know. But it started to making me wonder, well, why? I could never find a real justifiable reason as to why Rollerson refused to release the report to John Austin. At least with some of the other decisions, such as destroying the bedding, there was some kind of narrative or story that could maybe explain the thinking, but this one, I just don't get. When it came time for the governor to appoint a new sheriff after Collier's death, Collier's son, John Austin, actually spoke up in favor of Rollerson. Uh, John Austin actually was a pivotal reason that uh, uh, O.L. was appointed by the governor as sheriff. I mean, he went and he spoke to the governor on behalf of uh, O.L. Which makes Rollerson's refusal to release the investigation report to John Austin so much more confusing. Tragedy, the true tragedy is uh, there's been no closure for John Austin or the Collier family. I, I think the substandard investigation, uh, early uh, rush to judgment, uh, and things of this nature contributed to that. 
And and if I were to ask why uh, it was a rusty judgment, um, I, I, I don't know how I'd answer that because, you know, what higher tribute could you pay your fallen sheriff than conducting the most positive, most comprehensive, most professional investigation that you could? I mean, you couldn't uh, give him a higher tribute. In considering all these different theories on what happened, we also have to be willing to accept the official explanation that John Collier committed suicide. Not everyone who commits suicide appears depressed or mentions it. It may be unsatisfying or feel like it's wrong, but what suicide ever feels right or expected? We have to be willing to consider that John Collier died by his own hand. Maybe the high-profile drug bust and woeful initial investigation of the death led to conspiracy theories that only distracted from the truth that this was just another tragic case of suicide. The more time I spent reading about this case, the more it reminded me of something like the JFK assassination theories. Like that case, you can sit for hours and come up with a million reasons and different scenarios in your head for what really happened and who was motivated to do it, who gained something from the death. But the bottom line is, unless someone comes forward and reveals some unknown information, we are stuck with the official explanation. However uncertain or lacking that explanation feels, sometimes in life you just have to learn to embrace the uncertainty. One thing that stood out to me in my interview with Gary Hargraves was this mention of a file with sensitive information on certain people in the community. I know the sheriff had a file, probably two, two and a half inches thick, of um, touchy information that you would not find in print anywhere else. Um, I was the author of probably five or six of those, uh, and several of the deputies, some of the investigators, they also were uh, were authors of that. Some of them were reports from private citizens in the community. But I do know he was keeping that uh, particular file. As this episode comes to an end, my question is, what happened to that file after the sheriff's death? If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing or leaving a review. My name is Richard Marion, and this is True Okie.